Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Good to see everybody today. And um, we're talking about sin in this series. And I realize, as well as anyone does, that it's not a uh, positive subject. It is not my interest in this series to be discouraged in any way, and I hope that that will be manifest as we continue. But I know a lot of folks don't really like to talk about sin because of how negative uh, we think of the subject, but it absolutely is a reality in the center of our own lives. We all know this to be true, certainly in a major way in our world. Two things to say before I really delve into what I'm talking about today. Number one, most people who have ever lived or who will ever live will be lost in sin. Just stop. And just sort of percolate in that for a minute. Most people that have ever lived or ever will live will die in their sins. We are the only hope they've got. Because it is only through us that they will ever learn the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the only hope of their salvation. And I probably should not, for the sake of my ability to preach, ask you to do something this morning. I attended a minister's retreat over the last several days. The reason I missed our outreach yesterday, which I hated to miss, but I needed to be at this retreat. And I will not mention any names for discretion's sake. But I found out a brother in Christ is a preaching brother is a dear friend of mine. Is in a bad shape. As far as sin is concerned. Bad, bad, bad. And I'm not mentioning any names. I'm just asking those of you who have a prayer list to just add this brother that I know to your prayers. God will move him to do the right thing. I hope he will. But by beginning with that point, I hope I can make a strong point that nobody, nobody is immune to temptation. No matter who you are. Ministers are not immune to it. Elders are not immune to it. Teachers are not immune to it. Nobody in this room is immune to it. Beloved brothers and sisters, Satan is dogging your heels. He's after you. He's watching you. He's smarter than you are. He knows you inside out. He thinks you're stupid. He thinks you're weak. He thinks you're selfish. Prove him wrong. Prove him wrong by clinging to the Lord with everything that is in you and everything you got. Today we're talking about 
the genesis of sin and salvation. And by that I mean we're talking about how it all began. And what we're going to do in the beginning of this lesson today is we're going to look at a few selections from the first three chapters of Genesis. And in case you have a hard time turning to that, it's on pages three through five in your pew Bible. I want to, Genesis is the start. I'm not making fun of anybody that doesn't know the books, please. That's not my intention, but Genesis is the first book. So just turn to where the Bible begins. In your pew Bibles, that's page three through five. We're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis, and I'm just going to read some selections to wrap our minds around how all of this began, because the first three chapters of Genesis lay the foundation, and the rest of Scripture builds upon it, deepens it, expands it, you know, makes things more specific, leads to fulfillment. All of those things are true. But everything that is a reality about sin in our world and in our lives, and everything that is a reality about salvation in our lives and our world is built upon the building blocks of truth that we read in the first three chapters of Genesis, which is about those primeval days long before even the flood came, those days when God was dealing with our first parents in the garden. And so I want you to, to look with me at uh, chapter 1 of Genesis. Now the first verses of Genesis chapter 1 are poetic in nature. There's Hebrew parallelism that is not always evident in our English Bibles. Uh, but what happens is we have two halves of the creation week. We have a making or a creating half, and then we have a filling or an ordering half. And so the first half of the creation week, God creates everything. The second half of the creation week, God fills everything that he has made. The, the seas, the skies, the seas, the earth, the land, he fills it and sets it all in order. And what we learn in Genesis chapter 1 is that there aren't a bunch of warring gods that created uh, this world as we know it. It wasn't about any kind of primordial chaos. There, there was no conflict whatsoever when the world was created. There was simply one God, the only one God, the creator God with an eternal agenda that he accomplished perfectly so that the end result of God's activity in the creation week was that he could say that everything he had made was very good. God is good. There's no evil in him. There's no darkness in him. There's no deceit in him, no double standard in him, no unrighteousness in him, no sin in him, and it doesn't come, none of those things come from him at all. So how did our world get into the mess that it's in. And what do we need to do about it? Let's go down to verse 26. This is the high point, the aim of it all. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle. Over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, 
I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made. Indeed, it was very good, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So as we end Genesis chapter 1, we've got this Hebrew parallelism, this poetry. We've got the making, we've got the filling. We've got the creating, we've got the setting in order. And it is crowned with God's ultimate achievement, which is the creation of humanity in his likeness to rule in his place for his purposes in the created cosmos, in this world, in every way. Now we begin a second narrative of creation in Genesis chapter 2. It doesn't simply flow from the end of Genesis chapter 1. It actually goes back to day 6, and it's sort of like a zooming in and focusing on what God did when he created man on day 6. So Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And here's this second telling, this focus beginning in verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, that is, domesticated crops. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, that's not anything that is said about anything else in creation. Only we are living beings. There are living creatures. But to be a living creature, and we are living creatures, but to be a living being is to have self-awareness, the power of reason, to have personality, to be a spiritual creature, right? Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we have a description of the land around Eden. And we come down then to verse 18, or verse 17, rather, or verse 16, rather. Uh, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, oftentimes I've heard it preached and taught, and in fact I'm pretty sure that I have as well in years past, uh, that the only commandment God ever gave mankind in the garden was not to eat of that tree. Now, it's not true. We've actually heard three commandments from God in the text that I've read already. His first commandment was not a do not. His first two commandments were not do nots. His first two commandments were do's. And the third is a do not. But this do not, thou shalt not, or however you want to word it, is the first forbiddance that God gave mankind. And it was the only boundary that God gave our first parents in the garden. The only thing God told them they could not do. Which literally means there was only one thing that they could not do. That would ever come into their minds to do. Was the only thing. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. And then we have of course the creation of woman. Given the special attention in verse 18. 
and forward. But then we come to Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, now we know from the rest of Scripture that it didn't just because this serpent was a sly animal that it could talk to Eve, but rather the great serpent, Satan, was using the serpent and speaking through it. And so uh, he said, indeed, uh, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's like I've been watching y'all. Y'all don't eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. Hasn't God said to eat of all the trees in the garden? I mean, shouldn't you be availing yourself of every possible pleasure? Why, shouldn't you be availing yourself of every possible experience? Why aren't you seeking to have this experience? I mean, you're missing out. Of course, I'm ad-libbing there. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so he lied. So when the woman, now deceived, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I want you to notice that the first reaction to realizing that you have sinned, the first impulse in a human heart when you realize you have sinned is to play cover-up. How can I keep anyone from finding this out? Don't tell me you're not familiar with that. You were familiar with that before you were three years old, weren't you? And it hadn't changed. Do you want anybody here to know Two or three of those thoughts that you had this past week? Everybody this morning going to come forward to the front pew and confess everything we've done the past month? I'm not, trying, I'm not being mean or hard. I just, let's be real though. Let's be real. We understand. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God, Jehovah God, Yahweh God in the Hebrew, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. By the way, for those of you that are uh, fans of studying Hebrew, the word in the beginning of this verse, and they heard the sound, it's a Hebrew word that we know as Shema. So wrestle with that. Think about that. Study with that. 
But they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from God. So, so the first response of someone who is personally convicted of having sin is to try to hide it. And if you continue then in that mindset, that cover-up mindset, what flows from trying to hide the fact of your sinfulness is trying to get away from God. Because God is unapproachable light. And His light exposes all. And if you come into the presence of God, or if He approaches you, Everything that you are to the core of your being is naked and exposed before Him. You cannot hide anything from God. But you can try. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. There's the third thing, fear. Sin is the source of all fear. Without sin and its consequences, there's nothing to be afraid of. Literally, think about it. Again, stew in that one for a moment. Just percolate in that for a second. If there is no sin, then what in heaven on earth is there to be afraid of? The only things that we are afraid of in this life at all have to do with sin. Sin, its consequences, sins, that's what we're afraid of. So fear comes to our world there. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And again, God knows. But just like the parent of a four-year-old, sometimes you ask those questions. Because it's about the interaction. It's about the relationship. It's about the process of developing your mind, developing your intellect, your understanding, your wisdom, your psychology, so that you will think about and embrace what it is that you've done and what it is that you're being called to account for and what it is that God is prescribing to you as the result of and hopefully as the solution of what you've done, right? And so he asked the question. He already knew the answer, but... Well, Adam was being put to the test at this point to see what he would say. Thinking about the story of George Washington, it's a, it's a fable, it's a myth. But George Washington and the cherry tree, you know the story? The story is George Washington was given a gift of a hatchet when he was six years old. It was the 1700, y'all. <laughs> if you think a, a hatchet's not a great gift for a six-year-old, but different times, different times. Well, he did what a six-year-old would do when you give them a gift of a hatchet. He went out and started chopping stuff. What else are you going to do with a hatchet? Well, according to the fable, he found his father's prized cherry tree. And some of the more modern tellings say he cut it down. Really, the original story was that he just chopped a, chopped a hunk out of his father's cherry tree. And then went on his merry way. And his father, of course, found out about it and came and approached him and, and was angry about his damaging of his cherry tree. And asked him uh, what, what he had done, and he said, according again to the fable, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped your cherry tree. So he came clean. Now, it's still not the best thing that he could have done, and Lord willing, I'll talk about that next week, so you're going to have to wait for that. All right? But still in that story, he comes clean. And, and so, but that's not what happened in the beginning. 
with Adam and Eve. Now, of course, they couldn't deny what they'd done, but he, he didn't own it. And so verse 12, then the man said, you remember I talked about beginning last week, different ways we hear the word sin. Well, Adam, now in the midst of his sin, being called to account for his sin, instead turns and is the first accuser of his fellow human being. He says, sin at Eve. Notice what he says here, all right? He, he said, the woman you, you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, by the way, you know, Eve gets a lot of flack for being the first person that committed an active sin. She's not the first sinner. Adam was the first person to commit a sin of omission. That is, he failed to do what he was supposed to do, which was to be the leader of his wife and of his family and, frankly, of the whole human race and her protector and the upholder of God's righteousness and the celebrator and worshiper of God's presence in the garden, but instead he just stood by twiddling his thumbs and let the whole thing happen. We learn from the New Testament that he wasn't even deceived. He knew what they were doing was wrong. And that's why we read throughout Scripture that it's Adam's sin that is the greater transgression, the one that has condemned the whole of the race, all of his descendants to physical death, right? Eve, yes, she says, the serpent, it's... She definitely blames the serpent, but she doesn't really say it's the serpent's fault. She just says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I honestly think Eve did a better job of coming clean here than Adam did. She's just stating the fact. Adam says it's her fault, even though he knew what he was doing was wrong. That's shifty. That's not admirable. Eve says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. By the way, Google this if you want to. But uh, certain species of snakes have been discovered to have certain lines in their DNA that in other reptiles produce feet, legs. But they're inactive in serpents. Just saying. It's not a science textbook, but everything it says is true. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy. And Lord willing, in part two of this lesson, I'll explore that and expound upon that a little more next Sunday. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God said they would die. Now they're going to die. God does not lie, brothers and sisters. Satan lies. We lie. God never lies. Verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
Notice this. Again, this will be developed more next week, Lord willing. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Sin does need to be covered up. Sin does need to be covered up. But this passage tells us that all human efforts to cover sin are insufficient. If sin is going to be covered, it's going to be covered by God. Only he, only he can sufficiently cover it up. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, angels, at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The genesis of sin and salvation. In the beginning, God gave three commandments. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. The second commandment, he said, fill the earth and subdue it. This is mankind's original purpose, our original function, is to take the presence of God, to be God's image bearers, and to mediate his presence throughout this whole planet, and to bring the whole planet, the, the full extent of our influence over our physical environment, our purpose in existence has not changed. Our purpose in existence is to mediate, to priestly mediate the presence of God, the will of God, the order of God, the goodness of God, the law of God, the love of God to every space that exists that God has given us the ability to reach. I do appreciate America has fallen far from its roots, but when our astronauts were first in space, they read from the creation account. Beautiful, beautiful. The third commandment, again, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The genesis of sin and salvation includes a promise and a warning. The implied promise was, and of course that that's true, is borne out in what we just read in Genesis 3, that, it, that if mankind had eaten freely of the tree of life, they would have literally lived forever. They literally would have lived happily forever after in a perfect Edenic world. This was God's promise. Eat of this tree, not that one. And, and we know they never ate of that tree because, again, the words in Genesis 3, God says, lest they also reach out and take of the tree of life and live forever, God sent them out of the garden and put the cherubim with the flaming sword to keep them from becoming monsters. To keep them from becoming monsters. There is... Listen, please. There is nothing worse in all of creation, visible or invisible, than an immortal, evil being. Can you think of one? Yeah, I can think of one. The one who spoke through the serpent. Think people can turn into devils? Absolutely. You know that's true. The warning, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. But God, but God, they couldn't have seen. They couldn't have foreseen the wars. They couldn't have foreseen that. They, they couldn't have foreseen abortion and the millions of murders 
of babies in their mother's womb. How could they have known? They couldn't see the suicides that have destroyed loved ones' lives. I mean, how could they have known? God, it's not fair. It's not fair. How could they have known? How would they have known that sexual immorality was going to destroy whole communities and nations? How could they have known? Brothers and sisters, God told them, if you eat this, you're going to die. If you eat it, death will be the result. What, did he need to write an encyclopedia about everything the power and force of death can do? Or should they have just trusted him? You know the answer to that question. We're way better off than Adam and Eve in many ways. We got the whole of the biblical canon, 66 books. We've got the whole of the gospel. We know it. We understand it. We can live by it. We got hope in it. We understand everything that God was doing from beginning to end now. It's all been revealed to us. We're in a great place. But in many places, we're also in a, in many ways, we're also in a worse place than Adam and Eve were because we've seen everything that they could not see before they ate of that fruit. And by the way, whenever each of us comes to our Garden of Eden moment in our lives, usually somewhere in adolescence, where we become aware of good and evil and we know that we've got free moral agency to make the choice between the two, by that time we've already seen murder. By that time we've already seen and heard of and understand sexual immorality. By that time we already know what filthy corrupting speech is all about. By that time we've already understood unfairness and justice. And what do we do? With the full knowledge of all of it, at least a much more advanced knowledge than Adam and Eve had, pluck, crunch. Tell me that's not what you did. I mean, the truth is the truth. If the truth hurts, it doesn't mean it's not true. God told them all they needed to know. And that's all there is to it. The central issue of sin, brothers and sisters, that the genesis of sin and salvation teaches us is this. This is the choice. It's what's laid before each and every one of us every single day. You've got two choices in life. These are in the midst of the garden. They're right in the midst of your lives, in the midst of the world, in the midst of your spirits, in the midst of your mind. There's this choice between two roads. You can trust and obey God in everything, and you will live forever, and all will be well. Because that promise has now been renewed. The cross became the tree of life. In Christ, we have the hope of our sins truly being covered. Removed from our account so that we need not bear the judgment of them on judgment day when Christ returns. And if when he returns we are found to be faithful to him, we will be able to live in a paradise greater than we could ever imagine. Literally in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And I want to tell everybody in this room, kids, please listen to what I'm saying. Old folks and everybody in between, listen, listen. The choice is laid before you by the grace of God. You can choose to make God your everything and your all. You have the power to do that. God has given you the power to make that choice. That choice is right here. It, it is present in your mind right now. You can choose Jesus and give your life to Jesus and all will be well and you literally, literally, literally will live forever. Or you can do what most people who have ever lived, most people who will ever live, do. 
and you can trust in yourself and you can do your own thing and just as God has promised as he's always warned you'll die and then you'll die again the second death the lake of fire and so we learn the truth about everything to do with this present world Everything bad, everything evil, everything unpleasant, everything ugly, everything inconvenient, everything broken, everything expensive, everything unjust, everything oppressive, everything debilitating, everything ruined, rotten, and fatal is our own fault. Don't raise your hand to God as if God didn't teach you, as if God doesn't teach you, as if God hasn't warned you, as if God is somehow to blame when all that God ever did was create a universe that was not only good, but very good. And all that God has ever done since, my brothers and sisters in Christ, has been good and very good. All God does, all he can do, all he will do is good and very good. Nothing going on in your world that isn't what it ought to be is his fault at all. So just because it's now a little more complex than choosing between two trees... It doesn't mean anything has really changed. And while this is bad news to some, it's really good news for all who believe. Because that seed of the woman, he came. He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. And you had hurt him. The devil crushed his heel. He had to suffer. He had to be humiliated. But on the third day, praise Jehovah God. The angel rode the stone away. And our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, got up. Alive from the dead, never to die again. The sacrifice for sin has been made, and it is sufficient. And the only choice, really, at the heart of things given to mankind, is yours today and every day. Choose Jesus. You will regain access to the tree of life. Choose anything else, and you're going to die. And you're going to die again. So what choice have you made? And do you need to make a choice today? If you do, the front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.